Welcome to the Hard Not Complicated podcast, a podcast about creativity and leadership. I'm Aaron Rees. I'm the founder and coach at Sabertooth Panda, where we say that creativity is hard, not complicated. And with me today are, for the first time, co-hosts of the Hard Not Complicated podcast. I'm, I'm opening the doors, bringing other people in. And one of those co-hosts is Jess Critchlow, the founder of Light Up Work, where she brings light to the dark corners of leadership. Isn't that right, Jess? Yes, it is. Nice. And that, and that is Jess. And also today, my wife, Ladina Reese. Hello. And Ladina is here because uh, Jess and I are going to discuss at length a particular topic to do with leadership and creativity. And Ladina is going to tell us if we were even vaguely accurate <laughs> at the end of the podcast where we will do Dina's download, uh, where she's going to fact check us and hopefully find that we were at least in part talking um, intelligently about the topic. Some kind of sense. That's yes. what we're going for. Exactly. I'm Some sure kind of you sense. will. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, the optimism is thrilling. <laughs> so, uh, so there we are. That's the that's the the format. Jess and I are going to talk. Dina's going to tell us what we got wrong, and then we're going to come over and sort of give you some kind of insights into what you can do as a result of what you've heard here today. And what you're going to hear here today is to do with the Olympics, or more specifically, elite international sporting competition. And uh, essentially, because we're talking about creativity and leadership in a business and, uh, and professional context, this is very much smack bang in the centre of personal development, talent management and so on. And I suspect if you work in these areas at the moment, you have seen a, a deluge of, uh, of, of articles explaining how you can use the same techniques and ideas that have allowed Usain Bolt to become a world-conquering um, giant of, of literally, because he's quite big and also very good at running. Um, uh, so you've probably heard, look, wouldn't it be great if we could take these same things that they use for these guys and then use it uh, for, uh, for, your, for your people at work and you are going to have a team full of world-class mm players um, uh, or whatever it is you do and we are not so sure or yeah. are we well we I, I, so we're going to discuss this today i think we're skeptical not cynical so exactly I think that's where we're at so we're going to take a skeptical look at at this notion this notion that you can take the same techniques you use in uh, training olympic athletes and any kind of elite sporting person and apply that to your life in the office I think where I would start, and we'll see where I, where I ramble and where you need to rein me in, is um, one of the biggest things that we talk about a lot is goals. Mm. So um, there's lots and lots of different sort of schools of thought of should you set goals, should you not set goals, should they be SMART goals, should they be some other acronym, or should you just be agile and see what happens? And I'm curious because I think that's actually one of the bigger differences between these two worlds of elite Olympic athletes and uh, we'll call them elite corporates mm -hmm. of A, do people actually know what they're trying to achieve? Mm, yeah, yeah. Because I would argue Usain Bolt probably does know what he's trying to achieve to some to some extent. Yeah, there is there is a there is a simplicity to the goal setting element of games and sports yes by design but yes exactly everyone knows what the winning what winning looks like mm. 
everyone knows what winning looks like when you're on the football pitch, when you're doing long jump, when you're doing the, whatever, the 100 meter butterfly stroke. I believe that is one. stroke, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that's true in corporate. Yeah, no. And I would even throw out to, just curious, I'm not sure it can be as true. I'm not sure yeah. this is people just being bad at setting goals. Mm. In corporate, that is. I'm not convinced that's what it is. They just need to get, get better at setting goals and yeah. there you go, you can apply the same principles. So the first question we have is that the kinds of training and motivational management techniques which work in a scenario where you have absolute clarity mm. on your goals, uh, by design, you're working in an artificially simplified scenario, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. might be very difficult to apply anywhere where that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's an interesting place to start. Um, and beyond that, there's also, so we, in, in the notes here, we talk about selection bias. Yeah. And essentially one of the problems of... Are they the same people? Are these people representative? Are mm-hmm. they? To what extent can you take lessons from the lives of extraordinary and 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 strange in some ways people? People mm-hmm. so strange they were willing to get up three hours before school and mm-hmm. go to the track to train, and then leave school immediately and avoid all the opportunities for socialising and, mm-hmm. and uh, having ill-advised sexual liaisons, um, you know, just so they can go and run some more. Uh, so basically, could, yeah. they they cut out most people's favorite memories of like school. Yeah, exactly. willingly. They're, they're willingly. ignoring everything <laughs> from their. They give up their childhood in order to go and compete yeah. on the track. And the question is, are the people you work with like those people? Are we comparing apples to apples in exactly. the old folksy way of saying it? Exactly, apples indeed. Um, and uh, and and another point, of course, we 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 need to look at is is. And this is controversial, I think, amongst this group, is working patterns. Mm. And uh, so, first of all, I wonder, and this, of course, shares... I know, Ladina, you have a strong objection to this point. Okay. Uh, that my, my feeling is that people aren't actually looking for peak performance in the workplace. What they're looking for is a sustainable and predictable level of okayness in most cases... Now, now you, you reacted very strongly against this when we talked about this before. Mainly because I think of a business and the performance targets they have for growth mm. and competing in some quite strong marketplaces where they need to strongly differentiate. Mm. And that can put, for certain employees in the business, a, a significant pressure to perform at peak levels at certain points in the year. Mm-hmm. And for just certain roles, are uh, have a lot more pressure on them than others do. So is the argument mm-hmm. here that that some people in the corporate space are expected to to perform at peaks at certain points, and it's sort of it, it goes up and down a lot more, and this may be more similar to a Olympic athlete who is expected to be at absolute peak for two weeks when he's at the Olympics and not necessarily going to run the same speed, for example, if they were to do the same race a month earlier. Mm. Whereas, so there are some people possibly in the business sense where that applies, where you are training for peaks, Mm. and other people for whom that doesn't apply, and do we know who they are? So I wouldn't necessarily say it was a healthy situation, but the two roles that come to mind are finance uh, teams and sales teams driven mm. by the annual cycle mm. 
for the finance teams, the annual accounting and the mm. acute pressure they have regulations and delivery to make sure very quickly they perform uh -huh. from a sales point of view the they call it the hockey stick uh, type management where people have to quickly in the last quarter well, they get hit mm. with a hockey stick no. <laughs> it's more just against the boards so, is this because we have a comedian here on the podcast oh i feel so welcome <laughs> It's, no. the, it's the growth it's the uh, right. growth on a graph type approach right. um, how they can quickly recover mm. but um, it's not necessarily a sustainable way of managing mm. a team mm. so I wouldn't say it would. it's a good thing for them but it does happen okay so I mean I feel that's more like panicking when you haven't really planned properly and sort of pulling all nighters I, I, I do wonder if that is training towards a peak or just pushing yourself beyond your limits for a particular period of time yes um however there are areas where it's not in your control so retail mm. for example um have the customer demand surge at christmas um so they plan mm. very meticulously for a peak performance mm. period with all these differences what mm. are the dangers inherent in in trying to apply the training the Olympic teams style thinking to the mm, workplace. It's a good question. I think, I think one of the one of the hard dangers um, is, and when I say hard, I'm talking about like bottom line. Mm. Is um, there's consulting firms who have all the right intentions. So I'm in no way knocking anyone who's worked with Olympic medalists and then tried to apply to corporate. Our uh, lawyers told us we need to yeah. say that. That's my disclaimer. Um, the challenge we have is they'll um, they'll come in and bring in all of this wonderful wisdom, and then an organization, especially ones that time time is money. You know, it's an app, but things like consulting firms and service mm. service based firms will spend time and energy implementing these things, and and then it might not work. And that's okay. That's never a reason not to try anything. Mm. It's just a reason to be very conscious in choosing what you're going to try to apply. And the ones that are more likely, maybe, to, to see a return for you. And it's not about being risk-averse. It's just mm. being aware and being conscious is making the right choices. Okay. So is, is that a question of potentially over-optimization? Is, is that what you're saying? I think it's a question of um, over-optimism. Oh. <laughs> right yeah. and and i've seen what i what i've seen as well is consultants are experts mm. rightfully so presumably presumably no disclaimer there <laughs> and and what i've seen happen is management then says well the experts told us how to do it and so it must be the people we must not have the right people ah. and that's it's it's a risk it is a risk in thinking that it A plus B equals C and therefore it must work for us. And if it doesn't, right. we have the wrong people. I and I don't think that's a fair conclusion. Okay, so so what we're saying is that if people believe that, uh, that there is a direct causality between using these techniques and performing at the highest level, yes. then if you use them and that doesn't happen, the blame will immediately fall on people you either sabotaged it you're 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 yeah not good you're enough, resistant you to change care. you're not good enough okay it can be i, I yeah. think that's a that's a, a poor conclusion but when you've just spent thirty thousand on a consultant or more mm. um 
you need to explain why you've spent that and why you don't see any returns for that. And sometimes okay. that can become blame, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's true, I think, of all uh, external sort of yeah. change programs. Yeah, definitely. That's not, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I, I worry about, are we overly focused on the individual? Oh, that's a great point. So the the narrative of the individual superstar, I mean, we mm. all know, to use Usain Bolt, as an example again we all know his name who knows the name of his coach his physiotherapist his nutritionist his uh, sports his, psychologist his, sport. his exactly. gp his yeah we know the name of the individual who wins the gold medal and it's very easy to forget that that person is part of a team and uh and then if we think about this as something to be inspired by already within the corporate space this myth of the lone genius oh it's such a dangerous myth it's one of my least favorite myths yeah it's, it's, it's not nearly as good as krampus <laughs> yeah. um, my favorite myth um the devil goats of christmas that's much better than yeah. the lone yeah the lone wolf the lone superhero oh it's just a mess that's the christmas episode how do christmas <laughs> myths uh, relate to leadership and creativity in the workplace. Okay, I like it. We have to do that Yeah, one. we're making so, note. <laughs> so just a, for a, a future note, come back at Christmas for, for more on Krampus and, <laughs> and other Christmas myths. Um, so, or, or truths. If there are any kids listening, obviously Father Christmas is real. Yeah. I think uh, kids must be interested in the Hard Not Complicated podcast. If I were eight, yeah. that's what I'd be going for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so hmm. you guys are fine. So, um... <laughs> so the myth of the lone create the lone genius and I almost said the lone creative genius because in my context that idea that the individual is the base unit of performance and not the team mm. and perhaps the idolization of these these high performers within something like the Olympics that there's a danger there that reinforces that. So this I'm like I'm about to go off topic ish mm. but I think it's a good point. So. Yeah. There is something called, uh, and this is where I'm probably going to elbow Adina, but there's something called, I believe it's the weak link idea or mm -hmm. something along those lines. And the concept here is that exact idea of where is um, your better return on investment? Is it investing in your top three superstars mm -hmm. or is it investing in your 80% of your weak links and bringing them up to say one degree better? Right. And there's very much arguments for both, and I could even argue both. But one of the things that I did hear someone talk about specifically recently in, in sport is everyone knows whoever, like Cristiano Ronaldo. Well, except for me, because I don't know football, so I've probably butchered yeah. his name, right? No, no, you don't know. The thing is, everyone knows him and how many goals he got, and it's all really great. And no one, to your point, talks about the eight passes that had to go really perfectly well yeah. before that goal happened. Mm. And so the concept, actually, there was, there's, um, and these, <laughs> Dana, um, there were people <laughs> who've done studies on this that your better return might be, according to them, uh, debatable, might be focusing on your weak links and bringing them one degree up. So what, what, do we have anything on this, Dina? Yes, so I can confirm that you're not wildly incorrect. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> one, one for the team. There were economists, uh, Dave Berry and Rob Simmons, um, who did a study on the NFL and mm. their draft of players. And they were looking at the correlation um, from the draft order So to... that's the National Football League for any non-sporting non mm. aficionados listening <laughs> to the podcast, yeah? Yes. They were looking at the draft order between 
um, when they brought them on and their per play performance. What is the draft? How they sourced players in the first place. So it's how mm-hmm. how selection is done in yeah, a bit like football. recruitment, really. Okay. And it's the process of selecting them mm-hmm. to how they actually performed ongoing, mm-hmm. and they from an economist point of view, they were saying there's a very weak correlation. So they were saying it was very, very difficult. So the ones who were in the first draft, so this essentially is, it's not like when you're picking teams at school, right? Right. So so you've got a group of people, you know, I'll have so-and-so and I'll have so-and-so and it's always, you know, the sort of the, the, the chubby kid and the asthmatic <laughs> kid. And I used to get pe- picked last. Yeah. <laughs> I was the gangly kid. Yeah, the gangly yeah. kid who nobody picks. And it's like, <laughs> um, so that's kind of a draft, right? That's, that's how it works. And what you're essentially saying is the guys at the, the start are... You know, the first draft was supposed to be really, really great. It's not necessarily a good way of selecting. You might be better off getting a larger number of the more, let's say, mediocre, but the sort of the, the, the middle group than you are getting mm. one or two superstars. So it's highlighting a couple of topics around the selection bias at the mm. beginning and also um, supporting the ability of the coaches mm-hmm. and the um, uh, people who are making the decisions on their ability to grow and transform someone. Okay. Like they could have done the same thing to someone else. Okay. So so what strikes me first of all is, there are, there, so as you say, Jess, there are two schools of thought here, um, and there's evidence on both sides that both yes. of these ideas are either you... You invest in your superstars or you invest in the the, 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 the masses um, and what strikes me is that there's, there's a parallel there between that and how you do investment mm. in general that mm. essentially if you have a very predictable scenario then you can make big bets mm. on one or two things if on the other hand you have a very unpredictable scenario where you're not sure how things are going to change then you are better off for safety's sake broadening your investment Mm. where i'd bring that full circle back to the olympics Mm. is i would argue they know what's going to be at the olympics in four years time now they don't know what the competition will be so i you know i get that Ah. but they know there will be a hundred meter dash they know there will be a freestyle 200 meter they know Mm. there you know and and so there's some predictability in the what not the who so they don't know whether they need to beat two minutes or five minutes or seven minutes but i think there is probably some some predictability there and so much as it's only Mm. rare that you get massive changes in performance yeah okay Uh, if you you plot over the course of years there's going to be a, a general uptick in performance but that's going to be pretty steady and occasionally somebody comes along who completely rewrites the rule book so is it fosby fosby flop the fosby right. flop you yeah, know yeah, this guy came job, along right? and, and said hey saw this forward stuff he's <laughs> gonna go over it backwards and, and everyone thought he was nuts and, and he he changed he changed mm. that entire world so what you're saying is that that the applicability of the idea that you can invest in superstars and get huge returns is really true in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can find somebody mm-hmm. who's pertinently talented at the age of 12, a very good chance that person's going to win you an Olympic gold at the age of 21. Mm-hmm. But in the world of business, can you do the same mm-hmm. thing? What I've seen the best companies do, and actually on a micro scale, the best teams do, mm. is that kind of productive paranoia. Hmm. So it's the, we're really great at whatever, whatever Java programming. 
That being said, there's going to be another language that comes in is, is the language in a few years' time. So let's mm. still be really good at that, and let's be really paranoid about disruptors. When people talk about game changers, uh, mm. they use it as a metaphor. But in the world of business, you may find the game you're good at is no longer the mm. game you're playing. Mm-hmm. And it is rare that that ever happens in professional athletics. This is where I kind of was kind of leaning earlier. Essentially, what we're saying is that you cannot really over-optimize in sport. Mm. And so much as, at least when you're just doing something like throwing a javelin, Mm. you can't over-optimize. So somebody could be fantastic at throwing a javelin. Everything about them is optimized towards throwing a javelin. But of course, they are certain that no one's going to come and change at the last minute, yeah. what the sport is they're going to do. So, sorry, you're doing discus now. Mm-hmm. No one's mm-hmm. going to do that to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas in business, that happens all the time. And we see this with companies mm-hmm. like BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. At the top of their game, somebody came along, changed the game, and they're in trouble. The same happens to Nokia, um, and the, the same will happen again to our current titans of industry yeah. in the exact same way if they become over-optimized. Which is ironic, to... isn't it? Because it's the thing yeah. we talk about all the time. Yeah. Right? And and there's there's some wisdom to play to your strengths and all those sorts of things. But when you only do the one thing well, mm. that's great. And that's when, you know, you become that superstar. And I think it's also quite a dangerous place to be. The phrase, play to your strengths, um, what that's probably saying more is whatever the game is, you've got to consider what are your strengths within the context. Right. So if you happen to be, let's say you take the sports analogy game, if you're a big guy, right, you are playing a, a game, let's say you're, you're, you're wrestling, you're going to try and use your weight and use your height to grab someone and, right. and hold them down. Whereas you're the little yeah. guy, you're going to try and use your agility and speed, difficult to catch. Um, if you change that game to, uh, to say, football... Right, if you're playing football and you're the big guy, you're going to try and use your strength to hold on to the ball mm. um, and uh, rather than necessarily using your speed to run around people. So so right. your strengths are point. perhaps more abstracted from that. Yeah. Um, so what we're kind of looking at here is whereas in the Olympics, in sports, you are not at all being abstract when you talk about optimising for the specific mm. activity. Mm what you're saying is you have to throw a javelin. You're not saying your strengths are these things yeah. and here are all the ways in which you're they can You're good at building it. relationships. <laughs> like, oh, what should I do, though? Yeah, what do you, I <laughs> what could, do you well, want, you what you know, want me to do? I, yeah, so <laughs> nice we're going to do a 360 evaluation of your, 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 your skills. Here. Well, that is a fair point. You can ignore a huge number of things about a person mm. if all you care about is their ability to throw a javelin or... Um, or, or run very fast. Um, whereas in the business uh, context, in the workplace, even your best salesperson, say, who's an amazing salesperson, if they are disruptive to team meetings, awkward when it comes to, to sharing information, all that other stuff, then it doesn't matter how good they are at sales, they're yeah. going to damage your business. Yeah. So... Again, so over-optimization and, and the fact that you can abstract away to very simple concepts within the world of sport and you can't necessarily mm. do that elsewhere. Um, and the last note I have in this area is to do with the element of competition and the winner-takes-all mentality. In the world of creativity, 
I really try to move people away from this idea of winning and losing because that feels like an extrinsic motivator. Mm. Mm. Is it possible that if we were to look at the Olympics as a model, we might take the wrong message from it and the message might be, it doesn't matter if you come second, you, you may as well, you've lost. Second, you know, first is everything, second is nothing. Mm. Um, is there a potential to push people into a hyper-competitive frame of mind which could damage teamwork, collaboration, creativity and uh, cohesion? Competition, essentially the, the role right. of competition in yeah. performance. Yeah. Is everyone motivated by being the best? Mm. Do we want people to be motivated to judge themselves in a competitive way against mm. against everyone else? Yeah, and I I'm you know, I'm re I really struggle with extrinsic motivation. Mm. Um and mainly because I just think it's a bit of bit of non nonsense in some ways. Yeah. And and I you know It's I, a hack. Isn't yeah, it? it's a hack yeah. and it's I think a poor one and even worse an unsustainable one. Mm. So I'm going to give you an example from my life in corporate land, which is I've I've worked in an insurance organization, mm. and this kind of hits on some of these points like selection and etc. But the idea was we have to pay these people a lot of money mm. and really big bonuses because no one goes to school and says I can't wait to grow up and be an insurance broker. They would might anyone say, write into us yeah. if you did go to <laughs> <Sorry> school? <about laughs> um, I would love to hear from you uh, if you could text us. Uh, be, yeah, I'd love tweet, that. Tweet at Aaron Reese or at <laughs> Saber Panda if you want to get in touch with me and let me know. Did you go to school and say, I want to grow up and be an insurance broker? And if so, how did that work out for you? Um, and apologies to those I've offended by that statement. Um <laughs> But you can be a 10-year-old and say, I want to be the best hockey player. I really want to, you know, I really want to be an Olympian. You, There's kids right now watching the Rio Olympics mm. getting really excited. Now, odds are, probably only a handful of those will actually go to the Olympics one day. But they get really excited and inspired and it becomes this big thing. Mm. And what I struggle, though, with the concept of no one really is passionate about this thing or no one's that excited about insurance so we have to pay them a lot of money so they will come in here mm. is I think it's a false premise. I understand it. Mm. I get why why that has become the world of certain industries. Yeah. But I think it's a false premise and I think it's unsustainable and I think it doesn't actually motivate them. It's just golden handcuffs. Uh -huh. It means, well, I bought a house based on making tons of money, so I'm certainly not going to quit now and go and be a reporter for a third of the money, even though that's maybe my love. And I love mm. when people do that. I just think it's rare. Mm. And so I have an ickiness yeah. <laughs> around extrinsic kind of reward-based motivation. Okay, because it, it can trap you. It's the honey trap, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I think, one element of it for sure. Yeah, okay. And that's not motivation. That's trapping do something either for intrinsic reasons which remain true regardless of what happens or extrinsic reasons which which stop being true as soon as something else changes i.e. if you're doing it for the money and somebody comes along and offers you more money you're going to change yeah. whereas most Olympians don't make much money mm. but if you were to offer them all the money in the world to walk away from their chance of uh, going to the Olympic Games they wouldn't Mm. And that, of course, brings us on to, to another real point. I know we didn't even have this noted down here. 
And we talked a little bit before about what makes them different mm. and the kind of ways in which they were willing to sacrifice, you know, childhood uh, um, mm. experiences and so on. But also that other hyper internal motivation that that people who um, who are oblivious to anything but this this deep burning desire, and then the fact that a lot of people don't have a clear sense of their own desires and, mm. and their own goals in life unless you're going to do a lot of work so you get this guy to come in and say well yeah I've trained uh, a dozen gold medal winning Olympians and I, that means I know how to get people to achieve great things so yeah but you trained a dozen people who Ooh. were laser focused on an internally <laughs> driven goal mm. and I've got a team here who who are kind of despondent about their job and would leave if they got better off from somewhere else it's a huge amount of work to get them from there mm. to being deeply internally motivated and does this guy do these people who base their learning on, on dealing with this weird set of people who have this deep internal motivation do they know how to do that bit beforehand anyone listening up until this point might think we have nothing but scorn <laughs> on, to pour on, on some so if you were starting off thinking yeah Olympics excited and I'm going to use these brilliant <laughs> things from the Olympics and my team are going to be brilliant and we've basically just you know shat all over that mm. um, in order to grow some some green shoots of hope in the manure that we have uh, ladled on top of the <laughs> of all these ideas so far um, to use a, a colourful metaphor uh, what are the good things what can we learn from the world of, of, of sports and from the world of uh, uh, of extreme human performance. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna throw one out there. Go for it. Should we do that and then we'll just Toss keep it going in. as we go? We'll, yeah, we'll juggle. Um, one of the biggest ones that I think absolutely, mm. from what I've seen, applies across the board is the concept of grit, grit. which is so that's um, anyone who doesn't know that's Angela Duckworth has done a lot of work around that in the past. She's she's there's. You know, she's done some really interesting thing, stuff around grit. What is grit? It's the, you know, I'm going to take years and years of her studies and smush it into this one sentence, but it, it really is just, do you give up? Um, and if you don't give up, how quickly do you recover? Okay. It's that idea of when things get really cruddy mm. and you've got to get up at 4.30 a.m. and you lost two meets in a row and you've got some kind of kick in, kink in your back and all these sorts of things... Do you keep going or do you say, oh, just forget it. Honestly, forget it. Mm. I can't, I can't do it anymore. And that's grit. And that is true. All those other things, of course, being said about the differences, that is true whether you're trying to be a brilliant accountant, whether you're trying to be a brilliant um, manager, especially. Um, And every every other, I mean, I can keep naming industries, whatever it is. Go ahead. Customer service (laughs) rep, working in a bank, investment banking, solicitor, (laughs) barrister. There you go. Those are all true. You have okay. to be able to keep going when the times get hard. I know it sounds like bumper sticker stuff, but mm-hmm. it's it's real evidence behind those gritty people. They are the more successful people, okay. whatever industry you're talking about. So what what can we take from them? What can we do um, if we if we know and we we know this very much from the world of extreme performance of, of optimal performance? What can we do if we don't feel that we're particularly gritty? So there's, um, and I might, I might 
have Dina throw out all kinds of other points that Angela has covered. The one I'll throw out though is around, um, is around understanding what you're good at. So mm. back to that selection idea. But she talks about it in a way that is not about introspection. Mm. So it's not about sit in your home, make a list of things you enjoy, mm. and then go and do that one. It's no, do all of those things. If you are in any way even curious about research, go and get involved in a research project. Mm. If you're in any way curious about finances, go and find someone who does that so you mm. can get involved. It's experience it, don't think about it. And that's the way to, to sort of boost your own what's that thing I'm good at. Now, mm. for those listening who are maybe 45 and, you know, 15 years into I've a career. Up of, uh, yeah. any hope I, of I'm not saying you should quit your job and go and try jewelry making and quilt making and, and 100 meter sprint. I am saying that, by the way. <laughs> Um, just for balance. Yeah, so that, yeah. exactly. You need both sides of the coin. <laughs> but it is about, you know, if you if you already have an, a, a career in finance and you're yeah. not, and you don't want to leave that career and that's great, try some different things in that field. Right. Um, and try them. Don't go, oh, I wonder if I'd like uh, financial controlling. Oh, well, I guess I'll never know. Right. That's not good enough. So people are essentially going to have more grit and tenacity and determination if if they are, again, we come back to the intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Essentially, if you're doing something that in your heart of hearts you don't want to be doing. Yeah, it ain't going to happen. And there's, <laughs> there's, I won't keep going on about grit, even though I'd love to, but there's mm. other, so there's things like find meaning in what you do. Mm. If you're a cashier and you don't love being a cashier, find the meaning in that. Right. What's the meaningful thing you're doing? You know, it's things like deliberate practice, which you talk about mm. a lot, right? So that's the idea of consciously practicing, getting feedback. Um, that assumes mm. there's an intrinsic motivation, don't get me wrong. Um, but if grit is something you want to get better at, and I strongly recommend it, yeah. there are these things you can do, you okay. can try, and you can practice. So so connected to that, there's the, um, the chimp paradox. Mm. Uh, the, I forget the name of the chap who wrote it, Dina. <laughs> we'll get that in a second. We'll get that. <laughs> Dina, the, the fact checker, that um, uh, which talks about how, um, in order to to keep going and to keep yourself motivated, you have to understand the different elements of your own mind. And the chimp of the title is this kind of uh, the 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 reptile brain i suppose or you, some people might call it the monkey brain the, the part of your brain which doesn't uh think in nuanced ways mm. which reacts with a fear response and can overpower your mm. higher reasoning and there are loads of things in this book which have been used frequently by sports people who again have to deal with that how do i recover mm. how do i uh, I wish I think of when I watch Andy Murray playing tennis and he just won Olympic gold. Um, you know, if he if he serves a double fault, an important point in the game, mm. and how does he, in that moment, not let that get to him? Because mm. right now his chimp is going, you you suck, yeah, everyone's you're terrible, laughing at you're you, the worst. and <laughs> and there's a fear response, and that fear response is run away. You something bad has happened, mm. and because human beings are social animals social scorn injury to your pride and to your standing mm. is no different from injury physically so your your chimp is saying mm -hmm. you're under attack you need to run and hide or you need to fight whatever happens is a stress response and i just i wish i knew how in that moment he lets go 
mm. of that error or let's go of that problem and moves past it because frankly if I have a bad phone call and screw up a conversation <laughs> with someone that can ruin the rest of my day mm. um, so so there's there are certainly those elements from sports psychology um, and sort of the performance the psychology of performance which which can be taken across and of course coaching which we both yes. are very very keen on um, both do uh, is very that started in sport that understanding mm-hmm. that how you help someone develop their ability is not necessarily instructional mm-hmm. so there is understanding the the performance psychology but also how you can support people through things like coaching rather than teaching mm-hmm. uh, which which you definitely can take mm-hmm. from sports mm-hmm. and uh, and from things like the Olympics do we have the name of the author Dina we do. It is Steve Peters. Steve Peters, Chimp Paradox. Yep. Available in shops near you. And just to add for um, the earlier one on grit, it's The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. Thank you. Yes. There you go. I, like having, I like having my own little fact checker. I know, checker. this is wonderful. This is awesome. You shoot from the hip and hope someone's going to prove me right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna say, well, I'm just going to make something up now. And I want you to find someone who's written a paper about it, okay? Um, so, And as, of course, we know, according to recent studies, um, a lot of people perform much, much better in the presence of, of sports equipment, whether or not they are uh, playing sports. Um, so so uh, I think I think one thing we can do in the workplace is bring lots of just put bats, base, yeah, put cricket bats around, and, and, and you know, football paint feeds. paint sort of terraces on the stand. Oh blimey, have I got something? Well, actually, if you refer to Frederick Hertzberg in his hygiene factors of motivation, <laughs> he will talk about the various things that drive satisfaction and dissatisfaction. So your environment will have a huge oh, effect there it is. on your motivation. There you go. And there this just is. proves that it's impossible to be so absurd that you can't find a social scientist uh, <laughs> who will back you up. <laughs> so there you In go. In some, some tenuous link of some kind, you can find it. This is basically how I got through university. Mm, it's just, nice. Just make the argument I like. <laughs> and then find someone uh, who's who's going to back it. you up and, 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 put a and cite them. Yeah. Okay, um, so moving on from there, we talked about mind management and grit and determination and coaching and so mm. on. And I suppose the last point is even if it's all bunk and there is nothing <laughs> you can really use from all this stuff, is it okay as long as it G's up the troops and gets everyone feeling a bit buzzy so here's my deal to this mm. my deal with this is the same why i'm totally comfortable mm. with my mum. Uh, sorry mum, if you're listening i'm not making fun of you she wears her copper bracelet mm-hmm. and she says it helps with her arthritis because she says the ions in her body now that might be true my assumption is that's a strong placebo effect she's got going on and mm. i love the placebo effect So in answer to your question, I think there's nothing wrong with it as long as A, you haven't invested half of your budget to to the detriment of then having to lay people off later in the year. Okay. Um, And as long as, and I'm I'm sounding like a risk-averse person and I'm not, but I think it's fine and it's great even because, again, you're going to get placebo effected of some of these things, let's be honest, as long as you're not doing it to the detriment of um, you know, other things you could be doing with that time and money that might be the better the better choice for your organization. Okay. Even if none of this is true, if people feel it's true enough, then it might actually help them to 
just motivate them as we say the kids who who look up to to the the guys they see at the olympics even if they don't become olympians if it just motivates them to try a little bit harder at what they do to believe a little bit more they see someone who comes from their neighborhood mm. who did something great and it makes them think well, hey maybe i that could too be. and and so the so maybe even here we're talking about representation mm. we're talking about showing people it is possible to for somebody like you to be great mm. at something they decide to become great mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. and uh and that could in itself just be a nice positive thing to bring into the yeah. workplace Okay. So here's me supporting pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah, well, no, placebo. Placebo is not pseudoscience. That's true. That's you know, true. You're right. You're if right. You, if, you, if you were saying the copper bracelet really was medically then I'd be, yeah. efficacious. But I'd only do that if I got commission, obviously. Yeah. Ah, uh, ethics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, if you buy a saber tooth panda bracelet uh, on sale or nowhere, <laughs> um, they will guarantee make you 110% more on brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Saber Tooth Panda. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, according to recent studies. Yeah. Fact, really. <laughs> it is It is fact. As Dina shakes her head and says, oh God, please and stop And speaking talking. of facts... <laughs> you've heard us ramble, you've heard us discuss, and now you'll hear Dina's download. Thanks, Aaron. We've covered a great deal today, and I have some notes to share that might add a little more detail to the more powerful statements that have been made. The impact of consultants on how businesses judge performance in their teams. There's a fear that the requirement to show return on investment might lead some businesses to blame failure on the lack of talent rather than blame expensive external consultants. We had some strong opinions on extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation with Jess, strongly arguing that extrinsic motivation is unsustainable. Aaron, I believe, called it a hack. Here we focused a lot on pay as a motivator and golden handcuffs. Aaron spoke about coaching as a motivational technique, essentially investing the top-down approach to management and allowing intrinsic drives to come to the fore. We also spoke about the role of passion and meaning, referencing both Angela Duckworth and her book on grit, and Steve Peters and his book on the chimp paradox. Some of the topics mentioned are in fact touching about 50 years of theory, which I will try to cover in just a few minutes. And we'll start with how the businesses view and relate to the employees. Douglas McGregor described this question in terms of his theory X and Y. The former is viewing individuals as a dumb resource with no intrinsic drive. The latter took the alternative view and encouraged a holistic approach to people management, seeing people as people. This is a foundational theory that was built on by the likes of Frederick Hertzberg and Rosabeth Moskanter. Hertzberg called the environment of the business hygiene factors, meaning elements that needed to be in place to increase job satisfaction and separately what factors could cause dissatisfaction. Importantly, these weren't merely the absence of or opposite to the required factors for satisfaction. Moskanter approached this question from a position of enablement, asking, what can a manager do to motivate employees and how can we equip them properly to do this? She called this her toolbox approach. This covered setting values and vision, operating models, inclusive activities, involving employees in the decision-making process and how to consider employees as integral to business operations. 
You could say very theory why. The other side of this coin could be labelled need theory and ask the question not how to motivate people but why some people appear more motivated than others. Whereas Hertzberg and Moskanter could be considered to have approached this problem in a mechanistic sense, if we do this then that will happen, treating all people as essentially similar, Maslow, Aldefer and many others have attempted to consider this problem from a more individualistic perspective and given us a range of frameworks in which to study behaviour and motivation. There are far too many to list here, but they all have something in common. In general, they focus on three needs. While they use different language to one another, it could be reasonable to label these needs as number one, connection between people, two, a sense of personal achievement within a set of skills, and three, the opportunity to achieve higher meaning or purpose, what some, including Maslow, call self-actualization. A more recent and widely read theorist is Daniel Pink, who wrote the popular book Drive. Pink is notable in that his three chosen words, autonomy, mastery and purpose, don't include any element of human connection. Pink tends to roll this element into purpose, since he argues that purpose always relates to a wider community. Also worth reading are the works of Joan Mary Hines, Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, Lawrence and Noria and David McClelland. On the subject of community, Albert Bandura makes the case that respect and esteem shared between members of a community will stimulate effort, the treat people greatly and they will show themselves to be great school of motivation. Paul Marciano builds on the work of Bandura with a focus on engagement, which is a topic now commonly discussed in many HR departments all over the world. Marciano believes that the business entity must show obvious signs of respect and recognition to employees in order to increase engagement. Increased engagement is presumed to directly lead to better performance. It could be said that where's Bandura focused on respect between individual people, Marciano expanded on this thought by imagining the business itself to be a person, able to show respect and be respected. It was with Marciano that we began to see progress in humanising these theories, with a focus on the social beings that all employees are. This could be said to be a key point in the shift from seeing businesses as machines to thinking of them as living, breathing organisms that can be healthy or sick and in need of treatment. Arguably, this is the main point at which business theory and the Olympics intersect. It has been a long journey, but if you dream of something, have ambitions and are willing to work hard, then you can get your dreams. Those were the words of Mo Farah on achieving his historic double gold in Rio. We have spoken today about role models, the journey of achievement and the power of seeing people like you recognised on the world stage. By allowing us to witness both the internal and external factors of success and failure, as discussed in Weiner's Attribution Theory, the Olympics and our approach to success on that stage can offer a powerful guiding principle to those seeking to promote greatness in the workplace. And following on from Dina's download, we'll just have a brief chat about a few points raised. So we're we saying there that essentially that a lot of the Olympian kind of concepts are focused on very high up needs and in the business and the workplace we haven't yet fixed the lower level needs. Mm-hmm. But something that I might sort of posit here is that some of these Olympians 
don't give a damn about their lower level needs for some reason they're quite happy to risk their uh so maybe that's another reason why they're completely different from normal normal human beings maybe they have their own hierarchy they'll they'll risk losing their home they'll remortgage in order to afford their their equipment to go out and play you know to to perform at the olympics so so it's another reason maybe that they're just not normal (laughs) so sorry sorry gold medal winners you're wonderful sorry katie ledecky we do love you (laughs) Well, I will say that that was a foundation theory, mm. and many theorists have built on this uh-huh. and evolved the concept to things that will be more familiar to you now, some of the language you've been using, like meaning and purpose, mm. etc. So um, I won't list all of them. There are many. Um, quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> you've got ERG theory, which is literally an acronym. Um, existence, cool. relatedness, and growth. Mm. Uh-huh. And they all fall into threes. Um, there was one four, but they're all kind of sent around three topics. The three letter acronyms. Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, you have TLAs. The, the fact that individuals are trying to acquire needs um, and get achievements, get uh, relationships, get power. Mm. So that's another one. That was um, David McClelland. And another one is looking at triggers and drivers. What, what will um, make you do something and how do we enable that? Hmm. So that's Joan Mary Hines. And she's looking at things like um, that you're looking for um, community, you're looking to achieve something, you're looking to actualize. See, hmm. see Maslow coming out there. And then what is the organization going to do to fulfill that as a driver? And without going too much <laughs> into all the other details, one I think is a famous one is Daniel Pink. Ah, um, drive. Um, mm. Yes, where you have autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Now, interestingly, although that one's celebrated, if you were to create a grid of all of the modern theories on needs theory, mm. um, all of the other ones that are talking about those different factors, um, focus on very similar ones to Daniel Pink. He's building on a huge foundation of other theories. Mm, mm. Um, but the one that he's um, not covered is the need of humans to relate and have community and connect with others. Mm. It's very much an individual piece he's talked about with wanting that autonomy is like a bit of the power, sense of control. The mastery is uh, the skill and the achievement and the growth. Mm. And the purpose is also meaning. Mm. And people want to have Mm. a a reason for what they're doing. So belonging would be the missing. The belonging. so interesting because I like his work and I've never thought about it until you put that out there. But I also, I fundamentally believe we are hardwired. Like we, you know... For those who love evolution, we've evolved as social creatures. Like we, that's actually if you part believe of in that sort of thing. You know that sort of nonsense, <laughs> yeah. like science. Um, but we've evolved to be social, like tribe-like creatures. And I've never, I've never thought about the fact that that's a huge human, like a fundamental need. I believe that. And, and just before we move, the other one that I sometimes add to that list is joy. When you think of autonomy, mastery, yeah. and purpose, what about just pure? you know pure sensory uh joy of something you know somebody who who has a job and maybe one thing they love about that job is they enjoy the feeling of say the wind through their hair when they're sailing the boat or or they really love seeing the sunrise in the morning because their job you know comes comes with that 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 
sensory hmm. uh, experiential joy element which I think sometimes gets ignored in what motivates people to do what they do. So one of the things the way the theorists would position that is an outcome of one of the motivating drivers. So mastery of something where that you are passionate mm. about, you have that intrinsic need met and you get joy as an outcome. But I'm, what I'm arguing is that it needn't be. The, the simple pleasure of seeing... Uh, you know, seeing the sunrise because you. Well, what's your favorite thing about your job? Well, you know what? When I arrive at work and I arrive early and I see the sunrise over the hills, you know what? I would never do anything else because mm. I love that moment. That doesn't require any kind of mastery. It doesn't require any kind of input from you at all. Sometimes a simple sensory joy, or if you work with animals and just you know enjoying seeing them playing. You know, yeah, whatever. you haven't trained them necessarily to do yeah. anything. Or you just enjoy the experience issue. of it. Mm, that's, that, that's really the joy, joyful experience, which we don't talk about enough, and maybe we should. And actually, I wonder if it's... So if, I, I appreciate Maslow's hierarchy has kind of been the one that people have then built on and done other things from, but I think you can be joyful without necessarily having all the food in the world mm. and necessarily having the best shelter. You'll see refugees who are around a dirty well laughing and singing and finding joy in what we would look at as a terrible circumstance off topic but it's it's an interesting idea I don't think that's necessarily off topic at all and and Dina you will have a lot to say on this The Jungle which um, uh, where we've seen who was it who did the art project there they built a theatre or something there was a we watched a video together about this a while ago um, and they built this art space and you think well these guys have barely got mm. clothing. They've got nowhere to, and they're gonna want to waste their time, you know, doing improv and juggling and and uh, so. On. But actually, they're doing that for 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 the joy of the experience mm. of being together and singing and dancing and playing. That would be the worldwide tribe. There you go, worldwide <laughs> tribe. Um, so perhaps mm. a lot of our theories underestimate the degree to which human being. I mean, maybe that joy, that belonging, that collectiveness, the self-expression is more fundamental than Maslow would have you believe. Mm. And that even before you've secured um, your shelter and your food and your safety, that in fact you need that. Yeah, you need your tribe. So you need your tribe and you need your, your, your joy. And perhaps that's one of the problems in the world of work Mm. that we think that all we need to do is provide them job security and and safety in the workplace and therefore we miss out on the joy and Lavina's smiling at me which means she's got something to add on that <laughs> well um i i hadn't completed the up to modern day uh-huh. where some of the theorists are up to so more than what Daniel Pink, I know he's the modern one he's as the well. One, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also um, I'll say these incorrectly, Albert Bandura and Paul Marciano, um, who are looking at how we respect colleagues and employees mm-hmm. in the workplace and how that stimulates effort and how we use through coaching and engaging and being present with employees, which actually is a huge throwback to a ni- the 1950s Hawthorne effect. Mm. The fact that we mm. merely pay attention to people mm. yeah. and it pr- and that's your placebo piece as well, mm. that 
um, the minute we show that we care and that we're engaging with people mm. and how much of a motivator so that true. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that connects back to the engaging and the community and the, um, the emotional intelligence of the mm. tribe and the group, mm. which um, I know I'm in um, the academia, but I will pose one example to the Olympics, mm. which is beyond the individual athlete, mm one of the huge motivators of the Olympics to everyone else is it is a huge marketing campaign to individuals out there. They are seeing role models Mm. from all over the world with all these different stories Mm. um, going through this journey for and um, uh, competing and winning and things like that. And we don't often see in the workplace the journey or mm. the effort yeah. that people are going through. Yeah. We see the award at the end. We see the ceremony um, in oh, workplace. Very good point. And it's true. Like, we love that story, right? Like, that is the compelling story when you hear uh, the woman who won... Sorry, we <laughs> <laughs> have time to Google this, but the Easter. woman, the Brazilian... <laughs> oh. wo- I was thinking of another one, actually. The Brazilian woman who won, I think it was judo, and she grew up in the slums, and she learned judo to protect herself when she was, you know, from basically, you know, whatever, mugging and worse things, exactly. And we love that story. Not because of the, oh my gosh, she was at risk of being... But we love the, you know, coming over adversity, the look at what she's done, look at this amazing journey. We love that. That is so Mm. compelling. And we don't do that in work. We just go, you have to do it right, and we don't really want to know the bit that led up to that because mm. that freaks us all out a little bit. And we just want to be right and let's yeah. move on. Well, well, this is maybe something which we can learn then. Um, uh, so I, I'm thinking here of Simone Manuel, uh, who is the first, I believe, African-American woman to win a gold in swimming. Oh, okay. And, and if you're like me, you may have grown up hearing that black people aren't good at swimming. Did you ever hear this growing up? I heard this. Strange. People believe that they are too dense physically. They're they're oh too they're too physically uh, muscular <laughs> so and dense, and therefore they're too heavy uh, <laughs> for their. But they don't float so well enough. Strange. This is what I was told as a child. Wow. Um, and so, as bizarre and as counterfactual as that, um, frankly, just look at National Geographic and see how many uh, um, uh, black populations are fishermen and will free dive to get oysters. I mean, this is just stupid. Mad, yeah. But this was a belief that was thrown around. And, and when we now see a black American woman winning an Olympic gold in swimming, mm. how huge is that? for those uh, watching and and we are trying to do this more in the workplace to show representation of people mm. not just because it it shows that we're doing better at bringing in broader talent but also because you want everyone to see that yes you can achieve mm. this and it should your 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 identity should not be a bar to your uh, to your success so maybe there's one thing we really can take from these mm. celebrations of human achievement is just the simple fact is it's possible mm. and this young lady is an example Simone Manuel is an example of, of the possibilities uh, mm. to young black girls who have been told they sh- they're not good at swimming because mm. Dina? Yes so 
that actually connects into, and I'm going to say his name correct, incorrectly, um, Viner's attribution theory. Viner's. Viner's or Wieners, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Viner's or Wieners or Possibly Wieners, I'm not sure. Or, um, Spelled W I W E I N E R. Okay. Everyone else can practice saying that. Okay, um, and it's how we explain success and failure, which mm. is connected to role modelling. Huh? And um, Aaron, I know that you've made comments on this before. It's how we judge others' success and failure and how mm. we judge our yeah. own success and failure. The, the fundamental attribution fallacy. Yeah. Yes. Which mm. is One of my favourite fallacies. <laughs> and sorry, the um, piece about that is thinking about um, what are we doing when we judge ourselves and why we failed so we can be ruthless mm. about why we failed um, as well and um, we can limit ourselves and limit our own abilities to be motivated by Absolutely. lots of things um, but also depending on our bias like you were just talking about we can judge others successes and failures successes being mm. oh it's a fluke they had all that help and support um, or they just were like great and everyone's just favouring them versus mm. I did this on my own and I put a lot of effort in and no one realised. Yeah. If I succeed, it's all down to me. If I fail, it's all down to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's, it's a useful, useful for some people, mm. uh, that thinking process in the short term. So um, this is, uh, I feel like we could go on a long time. You still have more notes, you, <laughs> so, so, but we'll, we'll probably uh, draw a line there under Dina's download. All those notes will be available uh, on the website uh, at sabertoothpanda.com slash resources. Um, and uh, and you'll be able to see the notes from this episode there. Um, so before we leave, I think we really want to say, what is one thing that everyone listening can take from this and proactively do for themselves? And maybe we'll allow everyone uh, to have a have a pop at this. So 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 probably um, uh, because I'm hosting and I can manipulate things like this, I'll ask uh, Jess to go first. <laughs> <laughs> Gives me more time to think about. That's something I could think. Okay. Um, probably could have prepared this headshot. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one out that plays to my core as a mm-hmm. as a granola hippie. Um, oh. and that is I'm gonna go back to grit actually. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the kind of advice pieces around grit and just mm-hmm. that recovery time and that mm-hmm. getting getting better at being bad at stuff and being okay with that and just Mm. keep going at it, keep going at it. One of the pieces of advice around that is our self-talk. And this is Mm. something we do a lot in coaching is around understanding what is the voice in your head telling you Mm. and can we change that script? Mm. And so my sort of practical piece out there for everyone is be very aware and my, you know, you can even go as far as if you want to keep a journal for even a day and just that voice in your head that when you screw something up, because you will, because that's how it works. What's the first thing that that voice says? Is it, you're a screw up. I can't believe you did that again. How, how have you missed this again? How are you not better at this? Catch it in the moment and talk to yourself like you talk to someone you care about. Sorry, I'll edit that bit out. You're you're starting to do this and. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, so talk to yourself like you talk to someone you care about. If my husband screws something up, I don't look at him and go, oh my God, it's a shame you're so stupid. I say, (laughs) don't worry, it's okay, it happens to the best of us. 
So be kind be, to yourself. Be aware of what your voice is to yourself mm. and switch it. Talk to yourself the way you talk to someone you care about. That's okay. my, just try it out even for a day. See what it, see what it feels like. That's, that's really, really good. For some okay. grit. Yeah, for some grit. And Dina, anything for you? Is, should, so is there a book someone should read specifically? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which one? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman is, is really good, I hear. <laughs> Nothing to do with this. But, you know, if you want some nighttime reading. Some, yeah, yeah, or on the beach. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, I will actually um, point out that uh, Rosa Beth, Moss Cantor, oh. um, was also went further than uh, Daniel Pink mm. and um, mm. she was applying meaning so she looked at mastery membership and meaning mm. and still the, only three things I know so. it's all about the three can't again. go to four people <laughs> can't handle <laughs> yeah, no, four. that's why there are only three of us on this podcast <laughs> I've edited handle. out the fourth guy who was you know, far too much for everyone to I handle know. so yes yeah, so she's brought in the meaning piece there and also the community mm. piece. And um, without being too soppy, the just appreciating the power and influence of being in a group of people doing a similar thing together, that you have an affiliation with people who do maybe the same type of job as you or are trying to achieve the same thing together. Mm. And the power of how that drives you on a day-to-day basis. There are other things, as all of the theories have explained. Mm. But I think that's, in all of the theories, the one that needs to be paid attention to the, the most. Mm. Because I believe quite a few management theories are already ingrained in businesses. Mm. It's very much on the individual mm. and performance mm. of that person, etc. And we don't pay enough attention to the community of the business, how we work across roles, how roles, you know, communicate with each other about best practice and shared mm. knowledge, etc. And just how important that is. Mm. Annoyingly, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll try and pick an alternative. Oh, are you going to suggest one for me? Yeah, um... Coaching and engagement and the importance of that in how you're supporting people along the journey and well, being there with them. Coaching. Yeah, uh, so so obviously I was just thinking and um, I immediately thought <laughs> of, with no delay at all, um, <laughs> so, so as a coach, um, I often try and encourage people to apply coaching methodology to what they do and it's very, very difficult. But one thing that you can do is apply some very uh, very concentrated focused listening to people to help them to mm. think and perform better in their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, Nancy Klein, I think is the name uh, uh, of the book. Uh, the book is called Time to Think and it's all about the thinking environment. Um, and so if I could say one thing you could take away from this, if if you want to extend that concept of team motivation. So we talked about grit and determination and people having uh, a better attitude towards themselves to help them stay motivated. I think that leads very nicely into thinking about the team and uh, collective belonging. And then maybe what might wrap around that is, do you listen to each other 
properly mm. or are you all simply waiting for your opportunity to speak um, <laughs> and how sadly common that is isn't well it? precisely and we're sort of sitting there and uh and sort of listening to you as i've got a really good story <laughs> and when you stop for a second i'm gonna tell you the story you have to tell when someone's like so on that note and they they do a story that you're like Oh my God, we weren't talking about that at all. We haven't been talking about that for 10 minutes. What's... Joe, it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. I went to the post office the other day and yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely, and you listening think you were listening. You were happen- mm. listening within teams and, and I mean, I can't summarize the entire book, but, but simply paying attention, not interrupting and asking empowering questions. Uh, if you can... If you can do those two things, which essentially means you know, pay attention means be there with the person. Don't interrupt means really wait, really wait. And if they stop, try and notice the difference between a pause to think and a pause because they're expecting you to contribute. And the asking questions is ask, don't tell. You know, be ready to ask. And that is based on the assumption that you don't know better than they do. Mm. And a lot of the time, I wrote a blog on this, I think just last week, is that people tell because somewhere deep inside is the assumption that I am a better thinker than you and I figured it out and you haven't so I'm going to tell you the solution I've got because I don't think you're going to come up with a better one and I think we all feel like that a lot of the time it means we're all terrible narcissists <laughs> but uh, but maybe we can and I include myself doubly in that because I, I it's why I teach coaching it's why I coach is because I need to learn to do that myself so so yeah so I think I think those three are really powerful things that you can do uh, until next time we've been the hard not complicated podcast you can find me Aaron at Aaron Reese on Twitter you can also email me at Aaron sabertoothpanda.com Jess is at Jess at lightupwork.com she's also on various social medias if you search Jess Critchlow and Ladina can be found at Ladina at sabertoothpanda.com thanks for listening we'll be back soon